You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With John Nance Garner, Vice President of Franklin Roosevelt for his first two terms, we could start any number of places. Powerful man in Washington, and number two, a potential rival within FDR's own administration, the first vice president to run against the president, sort of. A symbol of the rise of Texas's influence on the politics of the United States. And a example of a mixture of progressivism and conservatism that doesn't make things easy to explain. We'll get into all those things, but with John Nance Garner, there's one thing that we have to address about that bucket of warm spit. Garner, like many vice presidents, said some bad things about the office. But since Garner, hailing from Uvalde, Texas, spoke with candor and saltiness of expression, according to Country Gentleman magazine, that magazine said, you don't have to remove the rind to get to the meat of what he says. It was frank and blunt and even funny. He made it clear to an author in the 1950s that the vice presidency was the worst damn fool mistake he ever made. When he first was asked about it, he said, I don't plan to spend the rest of my years counting the buttons on some other man's coattails. He also said in 1948 that the office of the vice presidency was wholly unimportant. The vice presidency was in no man's land, with no arsenal of power of its own. And this is a gem. He told a circus clown, I am VP. You had better stick around. You might pick up a few ideas from me. We've talked about it before in this podcast. Every vice president, it seems, has said something about the office from the first one, John Adams. And usually they're kind of derogatory comments, particularly those 19th and early 20th century vice presidents. But... With John Nance Garner, he has probably the best quote that gets repeated again and again, that the vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm spit. And he apparently told the biographer that that's not even what he said, that the reporters wouldn't print what he really said, that he referred to a different bodily fluid, one decidedly more acidic. Here's an interesting thing. In his lifetime, no newspaper actually quoted that directly from him. 
you know, him saying that the vice presidency isn't worth a bucket of warm spit or anything like that. Time quotes him in 1967 after his death, where the story is first printed at all, uh, is almost 30 years after he leaves the vice presidency in accounts of Lyndon Johnson's decision to run for the vice presidency himself in 1960. LBJ calls Garner, apparently, and Garner says that warm spit thing about his opinions in the office. The story shows up in Theodore White's Making of the Presidency, 1960. Of course, is this is the thing. Garner very well could have said it. It's the type of thing he said. We just don't have a direct quote. It's always someone who heard that he said it to someone. Yet it's one of those funny things, even though we can't produce a direct quote to a reporter about warm spit. It's just always someone saying what he said. No one doubts that he could have said it. He most likely said many things that were even worse, and it totally fit with his method of expression and probably how he felt about his time as vice president. Nonetheless, there is a contrast between that famous statement of his and how he operated in the vice presidential office, at least near the end of his term, because he may have been one of the most powerful vice presidents up until his time, one that even had the power to get the office of the man above him. Garner's born in a tiny town, Blossom Prairie, Texas. This from a biography of Garner. The boy heard plenty of swearing around his father's farm. Rough language comes naturally to outdoor men. The rude words rolled off the boy's consciousness like rain down the rooftop. But there was something else that played a bigger part in Garner's childhood. This was politics. It became a dominant factor in the household environment. When John was two, Texas regained statehood. And from then on, politics was tirelessly talked about and practiced everywhere he went. A state that had been under military rule, naturally, would be very conscious of government. As a child, Garner takes a liking to speaking, to politics. He goes with his father to see a speech between two candidates for constable, and the one is very, very, very animated. And this has an impression on young Garner. He also learns something else. He could play baseball pretty good, and in the town of Blossom Prairie, he would get paid for playing. The town was strong with pride for its baseball team. The nearby town next to Blossom was Possum Trot, and it had a baseball team of strong country boys who repeatedly humiliated the town's team and humiliated the town next to it. The two communities merged forces and formed a baseball team to wipe out the stigma. Townsmen and farmers were willing to chip in to pay members of the team to do plenty of practicing. Garner played shortstop. Even though he's the youngest player on the team, while he's not a particularly brilliant fielder or fence-breaking hitter, he was its holler guy and spark plug, its star player because of his spirit and hustle. He moves down to Uvalde for the dry climate and suffers from bouts of tuberculosis. And his doctor says, you're, you know, you just have a few years to live if you don't do something. Well, funny thing about that is he'd live a lot more years as we're about to get into. But he moves down to Uvalde for the dry climate. In his 20s, becomes a lawyer, 
gets bar, becomes a country glug judge, and eventually was a member of the state legislature. When he runs for judge, he is a vocal opponent, Marietta Reiner. He not only wins that election, but Reiner becomes his wife and also his secretary throughout his time. Now, in 1940, Reiner says she never quite ran against him, but she was an opponent. She had problems with him, problems that were obviously resolved. Here's what one biography says about him. He would win a reputation around the courthouses as an effective compromiser who could make a good settlement for his client out of court and also be a good lawyer before a jury. And in the little county seats, which usually consisted of a courthouse, four or five stories, and a couple of saloons, he was getting an acquaintance, which was to be very valuable to him. Not all of Garner's fees were in cash. His law firm accepted goats, cattle, horses, wool, and other chattels. And Garner became its trader to convert these assets into cash. In a settlement of one fee, he took a weekly newspaper, the Avolde Leader. In addition to his law duties, Garner became editor, publisher, and reporter. His printer helped him gather local items. When he loses the election uh, for county judge, he becomes a state legislator. He's known most prominently for proposing to change the state flower to the prickly pear blossom, something that he felt was indicative of Texas. It didn't get passed, but it earned him a nickname, Cactus Jack. People like Cactus Jack and, uh, you know, Eventually, he'd become a, co- a congressman, go to Washington. He would have the Stetson hat, the white hair by the time he was VP, country manners speaking, and whiskey drinking. He was for regulation of railroad and insurance companies. But he remained conservative on other issues, like how much spending would occur. He got to Congress because of the tremendous growth in Texas, and because he was on a committee in the state legislature that got to pick new congressional seats, Texas was booming. Men like his father, who had been Confederate veterans, also some from the North, moved to Texas for the opportunity. When in 1900, Texas gains more seats, Garner all but can carve out a seat for himself. A very large seat on the Mexican border. A good compromiser, a friend of Democratic leader Joe Bailey from Texas. He's willing to be quiet and to learn. Town and his district needed a post office. That was his priority. He wasn't in the record in talking for the first three years in Congress. In Congress, he supported an income tax, but also controls and limits on spendings. He met more public men, it was said, in the Houston Chronicle in two weeks than some had in years in Washington. He met Speaker Cannon on a particular occasion when he beat the Speaker in poker. As a member of the minority party, it was the only way. Republicans would control the House for most of the time that Garner serves in that body. Democrats would gain the presidency with Woodrow Wilson in 1912, and Garner was a key congressman helping Woodrow Wilson fund his legislation and acted as Wilson's liaison to Congress. Wilson didn't get along too well with the Speaker, Champ Clark, who had run against him for president. Garner was one of the Wilson men in Congress. When Wilson left office, and Democrats were hit hard in the 1920 elections, just less than a third of the seats in Congress were Democrat versus Republican. Garner had pretty much made his mind it was time to retire. 
But one thing would change his mind. The Ku Klux Klan. When he found out that members of Congress, other Democrats, were joining the society, he publicly condemned it. In response, the Klan burnt a cross near his house, not on his property, but close enough to send a message to him and also stated that they'd be working against him in the next election. That was all the motivation he needed, and he won in a landslide. And as one of the few Democrats left in Congress, he became a key member, ranking member of Ways and Means and other committees. And then eventually, as a whip, Garner learned where the votes were. And as a minority whip, he was pretty active. He helped pass an income tax amendment without having a majority of his own party in the House and work with Republicans in Congress in the St. Patrick's Day Revolt where power was taken from Republican Speaker Joe Cannon. Garner whipped votes against his old poker rival, but didn't break their friendship. Took over as minority leader. His friend Nicholas Longworth of Ohio, a Republican, became Speaker. And so the usual um, poker sessions that they would have, just sitting around, became bipartisan how do we move this bill meetings? It was the 20s and drinking was frowned upon, but there was plenty of drinking in Congress. So they disguised the meetings by calling them the Board of Education. It was not soon after that that the stock market crashed and the economy too. And a couple of resignations and deaths of House members and Republicans lost what had only been a three-seat majority. A subsequent win of a seat in an election changed the House majority. Garner became Speaker after 28 years as a veteran of Washington. He didn't see any reason, though, to be mean-spirited or partisan or to act like the National Democrat with Herbert Hoover, the Republican president. Kind of agreed with him on a lot of things. The idea of relief measures with a fiscally conservative tint, grants to states and localities, funded by a federal sales tax that would also reduce the deficit. That fit the speaker's mentality just fine. In fact, he goes to the well of the house. Very rare thing for a speaker to do. Goes to the well of the house and speaks on behalf of a sales tax that Hoover had proposed and was dismayed when many of his Democrats and many Republicans bolted not wanting to pass an additional tax during the Depression. Garner was president of a small bank in Texas and... He knew banking, and he helped Hoover to improve the Federal Reserve system and get more funds for that. He knew how important a bank guarantee was. Fiorello de la Guardia, who was a Republican, but one that was bolting Hoover on many occasions, a House member from New York, was against the sales tax and other Hoover issues, didn't think there was any opposition to Hoover in the House. He called Garner's speakership a kissing bee with the president. Yet, That wouldn't stop Garner from encouraging talk about him running for president. William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper publisher, was very supportive of the idea. Democrats were favored to win with Hoover as president. And the Democrats, who were more conservative, liked Garner as the leading choice. Yet Roosevelt had more support. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. 
My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. When you reach the 1932 Democratic Convention, something interesting is going on, and that is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt is the governor of New York. He took over as governor after Al Smith completed his time as governor. Now, both of them, Smith and Roosevelt, are running for the presidency of the United States. The geographic split um, is kind of interesting that Franklin Roosevelt, although he's the governor of New York, is running against the former governor of New York. He's much tighter with Tammany Hall. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt had bucked Tammany Hall and was a rebellious state legislature, uh, legislator. So Roosevelt, though, is, is pretty popular and also has a lot of support with, that he's built up in the South. He has delegates from 31 of the 48 states in the Union. But when you look at the large state delegations, California, Texas, they're not for him. And the Stop Roosevelt movement has a majority of the delegates in the middle Atlantic states, in New England and on the Pacific coast. The only thing in Roosevelt's favor here is that the opposition's divided. And when one looks at Texas, they can't help but see that here's this favorite son, John Nance Garner, who has the Texas delegation support. And this could be the key to everything. Here's how it's described in Stephen Neal's Happy Days Are Here Again, the 1932 Democratic Convention, and the emergence of FDR and how America was changed forever. For Roosevelt to break the deadlock, something had to give. The states with favorite sons include Illinois with 58 votes, Ohio with 48, Missouri with 36, and Texas. Lewis Howe, the campaign manager for FDR, had an extensive card file of delegations with background and analysis. Lewis Howe was running FDR's operation out of the Congress Hotel in Chicago. I have to tell you that it's still there and I've actually stayed there. It's a wonderful hotel. Old, but wonderful. He has a direct line to Roosevelt's study in the Albany Executive Mansion. Howe had a voice amplifier attached with coils and wires to the switchboard for FDR's talks with delegates. I would get on the phone first, James Farley, campaign manager, said, and I'd say, Governor, we have in this room the delegate from Iowa, and the first man I'll introduce you is your chap from Twin Falls, Ned Chapman, who knows you well, and you met him. 
and then I'd mention the names of the other fellows who were there, and then Roosevelt would come on the loudspeaker and talk to these fellows, calling them by their first names and thanking them for what they were doing. Those chats became so popular that one or two delegations complained when they thought they were being left out. So Roosevelt has more than 600 votes. A majority was 578. He has more than a majority, but there is a two-thirds rule. And try as they might, the Roosevelt forces are not able to get that changed for the convention. Early and often, Jim Farley and others start approaching the Garner camp. Not only Garner, but even approaching William Randolph Hertz, who, while he doesn't like Franklin Roosevelt very much, likes Al Smith even less. This is from an article in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly in 1975. Farley did not need convincing that Garner had the key to victory. Farley contacted his publicity director and had him bring Sam Rayburn to his rooms on the eve of the convention. Farley dangled the vice presidential nomination for Garner in front of Rayburn, who promised nothing except that he did not want a repetition of 1924. Farley wanted the Texas delegation to cast its vote for Roosevelt on the first ballot, but Rayburn demurred, stating that he had to vote for Garner for at least two or three ballots. So Garner's a favorite son. you got to show respect for him and not trade him under. As the convention began, Arthur Mullen, Roosevelt's floor leader, pressed Texas Senator Tom Connolly to make Roosevelt the second choice of the Texas delegation. The delegation, however, was divided between Roosevelt and Al Smith. At the end of the first ballot, Roosevelt had a commanding lead with a total of 666 and one-fourth votes. On the second, he gained 11 and a half. Still short, however, of the necessary two-thirds. That would be 770 votes needed for nomination. During the second ballot, Mullen sounded out Tom Connolly as to how Garner felt about the vice presidency. Connolly stated that the subject had not been mentioned. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a contradiction, by the way, to that bucket of warm spit thing, although we still don't know, you know, whether at some point in these conversations he said it. There's something to think about here. Roosevelt, while he's in the lead, many a front runner, William Gibbs, Mikadu, um, William Jennings, Bryan, many a front runner, Champ Clark, has been defeated after the second or third ballot. The second or third ballot really changes the complexion of a convention. People have made their first ballot votes. They've shown the loyalty to who they have to show the loyalty to. And now it's horse trading and also more than just horse trading, some concern for the ticket time. So you have a lot going on behind the scenes at these conventions. What is important to note here is that Franklin Roosevelt almost wasn't president. Almost wasn't president right here. That after not winning on that second ballot, and, and also almost stalling, not showing momentum and just gaining 11 and a half delegates, the possibility remained that if all of the anti-Roosevelt forces coalesced around one person, uh, one person who would be agreeable, that would be it. And here's where Garner and his friends and his influencers make a move. Pro-Roosevelt men were also working on William Randolph Hearst. The Hearst support comes as almost a surprise to John Nance Garner. He's not expecting it. And it comes with strings. It's not exactly a good thing. Two cartoons reveal this. There's a cartoon that comes at the time that shows John Nance Garner in the back of a carriage 
locked up, and Hurst is driving that carriage. And then there's another one that shows John Nance Garner with a dark horse out in a field. And he says, Papa's been grooming you for months, and he wants you to be the darkest horse in the race. Attached to the horse's Garner's presidential candidacy. And then a shocked Garner levitated from the ground with a surprised look on his face, sees that that dark horse is being painted yellow, yellow journalism, by Hearst's OK. And there's uh, William Hearst himself painting the horse yellow. Surprise, surprise. And it shows that it was a double-edged sword to get Hearst's support. Of course, it comes with a lot of press but it also comes with a lot of criticism. Pro-Roosevelt men were also working on William Randolph Hearst. Damon Runyon, a Hearst reporter, and Joseph Wilcombe, Hearst's secretary, saw James Farley, who's working for FDR, and then called Hearst to emphasize the threat that if Roosevelt does not win here in 1932 in this Democratic convention, the Democratic nominee and likely president could be Al Smith, or the Smith forces might say, like, look, We're not popular enough. Let's give it to Newton Baker. Newton Baker. Twidrow Wilson's Secretary of War and somebody William Randolph Hearst really didn't like. Got into a battle with him over the the League of Nations and other things. Later, George Rothwell Brown, a Washington reporter working for Hearst and a friend of Garner, received a call. Brown saw Garner, who reportedly say, say to Mr. Hearst that I fully agree with him. He is right. So it's really um, Hearst that's very important here. Also Sam Rayburn, who's going to be a future Speaker of the House, right now is a key congressional member in Texas and very influential with Garner. Rayburn, after the two ballots, says Roosevelt's the natural choice for the Democratic nomination. Rayburn says it's important that they not tie up the Democratic convention. You have to remember If you go back to 1924, this is what is on these gentlemen's minds. People like John Nance Garner have their political feelings. They have their feelings about Roosevelt, but they also have their feelings about the convention and about the party and their strong Democrats. And they'd like to see the Democratic Party in a power position. It's not fun being in the minority all the time and not being able to do the kinds of favors for people in your district or to get people jobs and things like that. I mean, that's one consideration. They've just seen the party beaten. And one of the things on their minds is 1924, when the Democrats had 101 ballots in New York City over 10 days in the hot July and were laughing stocks across the country and blew a chance, perhaps, to take the presidency from Calvin Coolidge. Perhaps it was not to be anyway. This is where Garner comes in himself. So Rayburn and Garner talk, and Garner says the nomination should be settled on the next ballot. And furthermore, um, he doesn't want to see the Democrats lose a presidential election here. He'd like to see another Democratic president in his lifetime. And when that's when they say, well, it would be important for you to join the ticket as vice president. Roosevelt wants it. And Rayburn and the Hearst folks are crucial in convincing him of that. Also, a former Secretary of the Treasury under Wilson and presidential candidate of his own, one of the people tying up that 24 convention, William Gibbs McAdoo, is also someone who's uh, crucial here in, in, in convincing, though his role is, is 
How much? We don't know. Now, really, I think you have to look at Garner himself as well. Very honorable man and also a partisan and to an extent and uh, want to do the right thing by party. At the end of the convention, there's this cartoon that shows FDR and Garner flying in a plane while the Republicans, uh, Hoover, is riding on a donkey and saying no to Roosevelt and Garner. And that pretty much summed the election of 1932. It was a landslide. They also gained Senate seats and House seats. Now in the Senate rather than the House, Garner kept with his Board of Education meetings and he knew all the players. Senators in many cases, especially these new Democratic senators coming in, had been House members. Garner knew them. In the House, he knew the Speaker, Bankhead. He knew the Majority Leader well. And many of the Texas members were absolutely loyal. Don Carlton, director of the Briscoe Center for American History at UT Austin, said it was unlikely that Roosevelt would have gotten his first New Deal done without Garner. This, plus the fact that Roosevelt was popular. Garner was very supportive of the New Deal as long as it remained emergency legislation, emergency relief for the current time. But he would talk directly with the president and ask him, can we start to cut, can we start to slow some of this? He told the press, though, as vice president, he would not speak. Only Roosevelt would speak for the administration. After 1936, Garner is on the ticket again. Roosevelt and Garner win in a landslide. Garner manages to do something that no other vice president does, which is to innovate the Senate from the office of vice president. Usually the vice president is somebody not to be regarded too much, but There is a recognition power that the president has. Here's how the Senate government site describes it. What happens on August 13th, 1937. The office of Senate floor leader is very much a 20th century invention. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What could go right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. 
Zachary Carabell, and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout the Senate's earlier history, actual leadership rested in the hands of adroit committee chairmen, other senior senators, and newer members with previously established political roots. By 1900s, the nation had become a world power. Increasing legislative activity placed a new priority on floor-based coordination and agenda setting. The Democratic leader began the tradition of sitting at the front row, center aisle desk of his party side of the Senate chamber. And then that practice was adopted by his Republican counterpart, In the 1930s, that's the way you see it today. The leaders are in easy view of the presiding officer. On August 13th, 1937, a very small thing but important thing, Garner acknowledges an informal practice and announces a policy under the rule requiring the presiding officer to recognize the senator who shall first address him. He will give preferential recognition to the majority and minority leaders. As Senator Robert Byrd later quipped, without that essential power, the majority leader would be like an emperor without clothes in a body like the Senate. New legislation comes. Social Security, national labor relations. Garner hadn't been a particularly strong supporter of labor. He didn't like these bills, but he worked them out of party loyalty. The first thing that happens where there's visible disagreement with the boss and number two is when there's automobile strikes in Detroit. And these are sit-in strikes where the workers actually hold the factory and do not leave until the automakers will agree to collect a bargaining. Roosevelt supports them. Many Democrats do. Garner does not. It was other men's property that they were taking, he said. In Texas, we would call that stealing. He said in a cabinet meeting, but rumors get out. The VP is not happy anymore. Then when Roosevelt proposes a plan to increase the size of the Supreme Court. Garner not only is against it, but works actively in Congress and Senate. This is from Edward Purcell's book. The ever-widening rift became imperable during the fight over the president's court reform plan, thwarted by a Supreme Court that had by 1936 ruled against New Deal cases in seven of nine major cases. Roosevelt sought to rectify the problem by naming as many as 50 new federal judges. Though Congress had the power to determine the size of the court, the president had not consulted that body. Garner eventually worked out a compromise that added no new judges. Its elder statesman and the vice president considered this an affront. There's this moment during the debate over the Supreme Court packing plan where Garner descends from the presiding officer's rostrum and he's scowling and even holding his nose. No one misunderstands that particular symbol that he made. Then he decides, as he's supposed to be pushing Roosevelt's legislation, even working on a compromise, that he needed a vacation and his wife and, I, and his wife 
and him go back to Texas. Eventually, a compromise is worked out with Garner's help, but no seats are added to the Supreme Court as Roosevelt wanted. Garner is the one who reports to Roosevelt that his plan is dead in the Senate. Well, Captain, do you want it with the bark on or off? Roosevelt replied, without the bark, the court packing bill is dead. Now, of course, Roosevelt and Garner's relationship now will not be the same. They do meet and patch up and sure personally, but um, there's even an incident in 1940. FDR will visit him and sing a song for his birthday. But FDR tries to purge some of these senior senators who are working with Garner and others to pass legislation in opposition to him. And Garner thinks this is foolish. There's starting to be open shouting matches between Garner and Roosevelt in cabinet meetings. There's an incident that happens where a filibustering senator who's filibustering an anti-lynching bill, and you know, this is where you get up at the Senate chamber and keep talking and talking to delay the process of the Senate till you get your way. And, uh, and then he says, Garner would make a much better president than the one we have today. And Garner hurries out of the Senate chamber, hurries. And the Senator actually says, I did not mean to make the vice president hurry off, <laughs> but he doesn't want to be in the chamber while this is being talked about. He will soon come to embrace these presidential aspirations. Garner starts criticizing a third term effort that he sees is in the works. And Roosevelt jokes to his cabinet members that they had heard that Garner has thrown his bottle, I mean his hat, into the ring. You know, while that's funny, uh, Roosevelt was no teetotaler himself. Another thing he opposes is a third term for FDR. I would be against the third term on principle, even if I approved every act of Roosevelt's two-term, he said. I would oppose my own brother for a third term. One of the areas where Garner is able to build up this opposition to Roosevelt and also try to block a third-term effort is in helping to secure the passage of the Hatch Act. And in this very much, um, passing this piece of legislation by Carl Hatch, a senator from uh, New Mexico um, that would ban federal office holders from getting involved in politics. He is very much operating contrary to Roosevelt. Roosevelt tries to get the legislation blocked. There's enough Republicans and Democrats working together, enough Democrats who are against the third term that Garner can actually manage this group and get the bill passed in the House and directly contribute to it being passed in the Senate. He's really functioning by the time you get to 1939 as opposition leader. Uh, but his real goal is blocking that third term. Right before the debates in Congress, before the White House can object, he places an additional language into the Hatch Bill, or has it placed, which also adds nomination. So office holders can't even get involved in nomination contests which was not even in Hatch's original Hatch Act bill. This bill is, this Hatch Act is still law today and still comes up in today's politics. And when it does, a person very significant in passing it is John Nance Garner. Garner then 
declares for the presidency in 1939. This is the first time that someone in the vice presidential slot, someone in the vice presidential slot declares for the presidency while the president is still in office and still may run. Roosevelt never says he's not going to run. In fact, he has on his side of politics, James Farley, who thinks that he's going to step down as well. And that will be Farley versus Garner. And with Farley controlling, Farley controlling the old uh, FDR machine, perhaps he'll win, or perhaps Garner's conservatives will win. Now, something else is happening behind the scenes in Texas, where Garner is very strong in his state. And Sam Rayburn, who's an important figure in the House right now, cannot buck Garner. It's too much of a relationship with him. He gets involved, has to endorse Garner. Roosevelt wants Texas contended and finds an ally in young Congressman Lyndon Johnson, who has several conferences at the White House with him, gets a, builds a good relationship with the president during this time. Roosevelt ends up not needing to contest Texas. And the end, a telegram is sent out by Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson, the Garner side and the Roosevelt side. This whole debate elevates Johnson, will put him on the track to the presidency, and also solidifies his position as a power broker, an important person in Texas politics. Here's what Robert Cowell writes. A columnist, Ray Tucker, wrote, after Roosevelt defeated Garner in Illinois in April 1940, Garner was finished and everybody knew it. Ray Tucker writes, The most downhearted man on Capitol Hill is Vice President John Nance Garner. His friends have deserted him. Left him cold. When Jack was riding high, his office was the gathering place of senators. They rushed in every hour of the day to seek his advice or to toss off a quick drink. But his office is no longer a magnet for the politicos. The most popular vehicle on Capitol Hill these days is the third-term bandwagon. But refusing to bow out of the late race, Garner said defiantly that his name would be presented to the convention, if only as a gesture. But a gesture was all it would be. When uh, Garner leaves for Rivalde, Texas, leaving his home and his father, who has 12 other children, you know, busy father, but sees him out and says, John, two things. Always be a gentleman. And always tell the truth. After his vice presidency was over, he told a reporter, I don't know about the gentlemanly part, but I've never told a lie. It begins something of a Texas tradition to go see this elder statesman of Texas politics, John Nance Garner. Truman will come see him. Lyndon Johnson will come see him and call him often. Um... He survives to age 98, and this is a person who smoked tobacco and drank almost every day of his life. He gets to play one more role in history. This person, born just a few years after the Civil War ended, is one of the last people to talk to President John F. Kennedy, because John F. Kennedy calls him the morning of November 23rd, 1967, to wish him well, as one must do, when they're going through Texas. True to his word, he never gets involved in Washington politics again. I want to thank you for listening to the Vice Presidents of the United States podcast. Um, you know, my podcast is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Check it out if you haven't. 
If you like the program, rate us. Let somebody know about it. That's the best way you can help. And I thank you for listening.